turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sure if you're like me, you've had situations in your life, maybe thinking back a few years, where your parents told you to do something. And like, listen, I want this done before I get back, right? And what happened? You pretty much forgot about it, right? You forgot about it until, like, you heard your dad's truck coming up the driveway, right? And like, ah, what is this? Oh, I was supposed to be doing that. And then you just came in this whirlwind of activity, right? And you're trying to do in five minutes what it would take normally three hours, right? Or that may have happened uh, when the teacher said, listen, I'm going to be uh, have to step out for a little bit. Key code words being issued here. I want you to do this. And did you do it, right? Well, you probably got right after it, right after she was just about ready to come back in. Maybe you had a coach tell you, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to be working with some of the other runners or players. And, and you know what happened, right? So, you know, it's every once in a while it's good to think about, am I doing what I've been asked to do? If you've got an employer and they've asked you to do certain things, are you actually doing it? got a question. How are you doing with what Jesus asked you to do? Well, you might come here and go like, I, I actually do not recall that Jesus even asked me to do anything. Like, what, what specifically am I supposed to be doing? Some of you are like, aha, it's like the, the truck coming up the driveway. Whoa, am I, am I doing what Jesus asked me to do? What is it that we're supposed to do? Remember, after his death and resurrection, shortly before he ascends up to the Father with the promise I'm coming back, he made this statement. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. This is what I want you to do. It wasn't a suggestion. It's actually a command. I want you to go, therefore, and what? That's it. Make disciples of all the nations. I want you to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to be teaching them to observe all that I commanded you to do. I want you to teach them everything. Not a few things. Everything. And I'm going to be with you always. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll do my work through you, but this is what I want you to do. So I just want to ask, how are you doing with what Jesus has asked you to do? When Jesus made that statement, he actually issued it about 2,000 years ago. He gave it in a culture that actually understood making disciples. For instance, that's what parents did with their children. If you want an example of that, just read the book of Proverbs, and you see fathers pleading with their sons, follow the, the advice and the wisdom of your mother. Do this. Stay away from evil. What's going on here? It's, it's a father mentoring, discipling his son. But there was another aspect of discipleship that was very familiar in the culture of Jesus at the time he issued that statement, and that is that this is what rabbis did. They actually made disciples. Now, a rabbi, that literally means a teacher, and the teacher's of Israel were called rabbis. And they had two major important functions in society. One is that they taught. They taught large groups of people. Some of them in Jerusalem kind of hung around the Temple Mount and they would teach. They would teach through the scriptures. They would help people understand what God has said. They would call them to, to respond by faith. Some of them, most of them, were itinerant, meaning they kind of went from little town to village and they would speak in synagogues, they would read the scriptures, and then what they would do was help the people understand them. And that's how they lived. They taught. And as people were benefited from their ministry, uh, as an expression of worship and devotion, they would support these rabbis, whether they be at the Temple Mount or their itinerant, and that's kind of how it functioned. But being a teacher 
wasn't actually their most important ministry. The most important ministry a rabbi had was that they made disciples. They had their dedicated group of students called the Talmudim. And these students actually lived with the rabbi. And this would go on for a season of their life, likely years, where they would travel, eat with, always be with the rabbi. And the rabbi, this teacher, was always pouring into their lives, seeking for them to grow and develop. It was an intentional strategy. So when Jesus actually says, go make disciples of all the nations, they had context for it. They understood. Not only did they understand from their culture, specifically rabbis and parents, but specifically, this is what Jesus did. He selected his group. He actually picked 12 very ordinary people. They had ordinary lives, ordinary problems. There was nothing spectacular about the 12 that he chose. All you have to do is read the gospel accounts. In fact, they come to, sometimes come off looking kind of bad, which gives me great hope. You know, like if Jesus can use guys like this, I might stand a chance, right? These were just normal, average people. And yet, he was going to pour into them. They lived with him. He taught them. And through the power of his spirit, he would literally transform their lives. So let me just ask you, what does discipleship look like in your life? I mean, this is what we're supposed to be doing, right? This is what Jesus has told us to do. So what does it look like in your life as a parent, as a grandparent? Uh, What does discipleship look like? In the ministry in this church, is there anybody you see yourself investing in? Are there little children or kids or you got someone you're meeting with? And what does it look like in your work? If you have a job, that is a major part of your ministry. What does it look like if you're a student in your school to make disciples? You know, we don't have to guess. You don't have to like, oh, I guess you just have to do this and you start making things up. This sounds good. All you have to do It's follow the pattern that Jesus gave us. And that's exactly what we find when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We find that the Apostle Paul is literally making disciples in the exact same pattern that Jesus did. And that pattern is meant to continue to this day. So I want you to be thinking of someone either that you are investing in or that you could be. One of your kids, Someone in this church, some of the little kids, college students, high school, uh, some of the adults. We got a lot of those. Someone at work. What does this look like? I will tell you that there are four practices that Christ-centered disciple makers follow, and they're very simple, and they're laid out for us right here in Scripture. The first thing is, if if you're going to really make disciples, the people that you're investing in actually have to know that you care about them, that there is something compelling about your love for the individuals. We saw this last week, but look at verse 7. Paul writes, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Gentleness has the idea of being kind, but it really encompasses a lot of ideas, like being uh, accepting, respect, being patient uh, with people that are developing, And the idea is that we care for you deeply, and he uses the imagery of how a nursing mom cares for her little child. Doesn't get a lot more tender than that, right? By the way, this is the exact same imagery that Moses used when talking about caring for the people of Israel. 
And so he says tenderly cared. That, that actually refers to the fact that you warm someone up with your body heat. That's the kind of depth in the imagery that is being expressed here. You know, a nursing mom, her diet is critically important to her child. Did you know that? Right? Because whatever mom's eating is going to get translated to what the baby's eating. And if, it's, if the adult, the mom doesn't have a healthy diet, chances are we're going to have some troubles with the kid. And so he says, I want you to know, I came and I gave you the pure milk of the word. I gave you my life. I, I loved you. Now, when we talk about loving like a mother, they, when we talk about leadership, no one but the church, specifically the Bible, would ever refer to it like this. In fact, I would challenge you, name me one Christian leadership seminar that actually even addresses the subject of loving and leading like this. Because I've never run across one. But yet, Paul says, this is how you go about it. This is how what we did. You bore witness in our life. We loved you like this. We were not assertive in a sense of trying to just gain and garner your attention. We certainly weren't trying to take advantage of you. We loved you. How does a mom lead? Moms lead by encouraging, supporting, challenging, nurturing, praying, protecting. For what end? They want to see their child doing well, to mature, to flourish, to succeed. That's how moms lead. There is something very distinct about them. In fact, if that's not happening, we're like, wait, something's not quite right. Because mothers, it's like God has built into them, I want my child doing well. And they give them themselves just in that way. Paul says, that's how we did it. And verse 8, he says, having so fond an affection for you. Do you see the language there? I mean, we really loved you. Having so fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become what? Very dear to us. If you're going to make disciples, you've got to learn how to love people. That's what Paul did. That's what we see in Jesus. Now, when Paul is talking about this, to Paul, love is always a verb. It's always an action. We think that love, uh, we'll love someone if we've got the emotions for it. We're, we're feeling like I need to love you, right? And some of you have been waiting for years, right? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the emotion of loving someone, and, I'm, and then I'm going to really branch out, man. Watch out. I'm going to tear it up. But actually, when you look at biblical love, agapao love, it's a love that is actually an action of one's will. You are committed to the best interest of another despite how they might be treating you, and even perhaps despite on how you might be feeling toward them. I love you, hence I'm committed to you. Could change your marriage. Will definitely change your influence when you learn to love like this. And not only did they give their heart, but they also gave truth. Did you see that? We imparted to you, obviously, our lives. You became very dear to us, but they also gave them the gospel. They gave them truth. Friends, that's what we need to do. We, like it says in Ephesians 4.15, we are speaking the truth in love. The two are meant to be together. You know, it's kind of like we talked about last week. People really don't care what you know until they what? Know how much you... It was so much better first service. Okay. They know how much you what? Care. Very good. All right. Okay, everybody's awake now? All right. When people know that you care, then you actually have the opportunity of making these kind of investments. 
And by the way, this is what you see Jesus doing. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, he loved deeply. In John chapter 13, verse 1, there is this summary statement about Jesus' ministry. And it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father. So this is right before he's going to be apprehended, right before he's going to be beat, and right before his crucifixion, his execution. It, the, the statement is made about Jesus, and it says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the telos. It has the idea of totally, completely. He loved them by serving them. Right after John 13, 1, he actually washes their feet. He prays for them. And he is just about willingly going to die for them. Remember Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Not while you were fuzzy, cute, and like, oh, that's just adorable little people. I just need to get you in my kingdom. No, 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 no. Well, we're yet sinners, right? We're doing our own program. We are alienated from God and kind of happy about it. He dies for us. Why? Because he loves us. If you want to understand Jesus, all you have to do is look at the cross and what went into it. His love. You know, what does this look like, um, loving like this? How, how do you really express care to people? Just give it real, just, just spill it out real clearly. I, I'll tell you. For men, for guys, the language of males is respect. That's how it works. You want to express care to a male, especially male to male, you show them respect. You look them in the eyes, you shake their hand, you don't roll your eyes when they're talking, you don't cut them off, you show an interest in them. If you can communicate respect, you are communicating, I care. And boy, that'll open up avenues. I'll tell you, you can lead people that are much older than you if you can show the males respect. For females, it's this, unconditional love. When a woman knows that you are safe as a husband or like woman to woman, not that you approve of bad behavior or wrong motives, but that you are deeply committed to their best interests, you've become a safe person, well, then she has the opportunity to flourish. She will open up. And that's what you do. And friends, that's what Jesus did. And that's what we must do if we're going to make disciples. We have to look to connect at a heart level. So you've got to enter into their world. Find out about their family. Find out about their, what's going on in their life. And you have to learn how to ask good questions. I, I kind of marvel at how few people actually know how to ask even a decent question. And so we end up having all these superficial relationships because no one can ask any questions deeper than what do you think about the college football game last week. I mean, it's just pathetic. Because you and I, if we're going to have depth, we have to learn how to ask a few good questions, right? When you do that, you're communicating, I care about you. I'd like to know about you. Let's talk. So if you um, are going to make disciples like Jesus, and this is what, by the way, we're called to do, it all begins with caring. In fact, if you can't do that, <laughs> we're not going anywhere. Let me give you a second practice, and it's right here in the text. Not only do we need to be caring, like we saw in verses 7 and 8, but we need to be communicating. Look at verse 9. 
For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Now, that doesn't mean they're working 24-7. Night and day was a Jewish way of saying working a part of a day, part of a night, okay? Don't get the idea they never slept. They did. What the working day kind of looked like when the sun came up, that's when people started working. Uh, The trade that Paul is in, uh, he is actually a tent maker. Probably more specifically, we uh, see him as a leather worker, okay? See this in the book of Acts. I think it's in Acts chapter 18. He's, He's making tents. He actually, when he's working, he's talking, and that's kind of how it did. You could talk while you're doing your trade. If you were a leather worker, not only you make tents, but there's a lot of things you needed leather for, and that's, that would give you a market, an ability to make a living pretty much everywhere because everybody needed leather goods. So he says, I was working night and day, but for this purpose, so that I could what? Proclaim to you the gospel of God. Do you see that in verse 9? He spoke in large groups like, In Thessalonica, he got to speak at the synagogue three times before they put the run on him. But then he just found places in the marketplace to engage people. There were small groups, and there was just one-to-one. You could see him just inviting people like, hey, I'm going to be working on this. Why don't you come and join me? And and you could work and talk. But then by the afternoon time, that would be actually free him up then to actually go and do some of these different things. And what are they presenting? They're presenting the gospel of God. What would that all entail? Well, that would entail, first of all, that that God has given us his word, the scriptures, the authority of scripture. They would talk about the deity of Christ, the sinfulness of man, the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus, and the absolute need to believe, to receive this gift of grace by faith. In fact, really, all of the New Testament in some way fills in our understanding of the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. All that God has done, is doing, and will do through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what they presented. They talked about justification, how you're made right with God. Literally, the righteousness of Christ is transferred to your account when you believe in Jesus. They talked about uh, sanctification, being set apart by the Holy Spirit for God to become shaped to the image of Jesus. Holiness, obedience to the word, walking in the Spirit. Talk about glorification, that Jesus is coming back and we live in light of his return. We presented to you, we're talking about, we're communicating the gospel. And by the way, this is the pattern that we see in Jesus. Jesus was always communicating. Sermons, Q&A times, parables. He'd ask some questions. Sometimes he'd ask, answer the questions. Sometimes he'd ask a question and didn't answer it. But he was always communicating. He was kind of like a gardener. And he's just planting seeds in the garden. He wanted people to be thinking about what he had to say. And hence, he was always communicating. Really, it's very interesting. Jesus didn't have like a school. There is no seminary that Jesus set up. Like, I'm going to really train people. And so you come to me. Actually, Jesus was his own school. He was his own program. He literally walked around and interfaced with people. He communicated. This is in stark contrast to the rather scholastic methods of the scribes. No, Jesus had a deliberate strategy, and that was to engage people and to communicate with them. Sermons, principles, discourses, talking, just relating. And you know what? That's what we do. If you and I are going to make disciples like Jesus did, we have to be communicating. What we are after is helping people really understand the gospel. And you've got to get to a place where you're actually talking about truth and helping people grow and mature in their relationship with Christ. In essence, 
we are building trust and we are imparting biblical truth. That's what we do if we're making disciples like Jesus did. So if we're going to do that, we need to be caring and we need to be communicating. But let me give you a third element. We need to be coaching. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul actually summons them to bear witness, both God and the Thessalonians, to how they acted and their motives. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. You know it. God knows this. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. We were holy. We handled ourselves in a righteous manner. We were upright. We were blameless. doesn't mean we were perfect, but there was no glaring flaws. We weren't trying to take advantage of you. There's nothing you could grab hold of that says, yeah, but you've got this glaring flaw like your immorality or your, your incessant liar or you're greedy. None of that. You know. And he says, verse 11, just as you know, and I don't want you to miss this, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. He had been talking about leading like a mother. Now he uses the imagery, you need to be complete. We also led like fathers who really cared about their children. We were exhorting, that has the idea of coming alongside and giving instruction and insight. We were uh, encouraging, has the idea of comforting, uh, especially people going through difficulty. You come right, right alongside and you offer comfort. It's not just like, oh, I feel bad for you and I hope you'll feel better by what I'm going to say, but actually challenged you to grow, to develop. It wasn't like you encouraged, like it becomes sort of like an anesthesia, but more like a stimulant that you're going to take steps. You're going to grow through this. God's going to see you through this. But there's something that's so very well, so very much needed when it comes to encouragement is because one of Satan's greatest weapons is discouragement. I mean, we all know about it. We've all been affected by it. I read this uh, fanciful story about the devil who once advertised his tools that were going to be displayed at a public auction. And so when the buyers assembled, they, they noticed an oddly shaped tool that was labeled not for sale. And they asked the devil to explain why this particular tool is not for sale. And the devil replied, well, I can spare my other tools, but I cannot spare this one. It's the most useful and effective tool that I have. It's called discouragement. And with it, I can work my way into hearts that are otherwise inaccessible. And when I get into a man's heart using this tool, the way is open for me to plant anything there that I want. See, when we get discouraged, that's the time we find ourselves starting to give into temptation, right? We just give up. So what happens is people like go to the idols, right? You try to find something to give you some sort of quick fix that's not God. It always lets you down, makes you even feel worse, but you want to feel just a little bit better. So you think, I'll try this. I'll do this drug. I'll drink this. I'll do something like this. I'll watch this. Why? You're at this low point. It's like discouragement set in. Friends, what we need to do is have some folks that can encourage us. We need to be encouragers to others. Do you know that you might be the only person or the only person that could be a voice of encouragement 
to another person. And so you say, you know, I'm with you. Look what God's doing in you. you. I'm pulling for you. I'm praying with you. But that's how you make disciples. You are coaching people. You are helping them grow and develop. And that's exactly what we did, he says. We were encouraging and we were imploring and has the idea of challenging. He says, we did it like a father. That's how fathers function. They're involved. They're engaged. Like, okay, here we're at. All right, I'm going to dust you off, but we need to keep moving forward. I don't know about you, but I had coaches that were very committed to me getting better than my mediocre performances. Do you have coaches like that? They weren't interested in like, okay, you're a nice little runner. You're having a good time running around the track. You need to go faster, right? What you're doing. And I remember one occasion they actually brought in a football coach, and he tore us all up, and then I ran faster in my life than I ever have before. I was afraid of him, and he lived down the street from me. But I knew that he was committed to me getting better. That's what coaches do, right? And that's what Paul did. And by the way, that's what Jesus did. Jesus was always interested in the development of his people. So he gave them sermons to hear, but he also modeled the message. He wanted to know, like, what does it look like? All you had to do was watch Jesus. Paul said, that's our approach as well. Remember Luke 11, 1? They kept noticing that Jesus had this pattern where he'd go off and he'd be praying, and then he'd come back. They'd be sleeping, he'd come back. And like, finally, in Luke 11, 1, they said, hey, Jesus, would you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples? We noticed that you pray a lot, and prayer must be pretty important to you. It's not so important to us. Something's missing. Help us. Remember the occasion in uh, Matthew 10? Jesus literally sent the 12 out. He said, all right, things are going to change a little bit. You used to be sitting around watching me do all of it. Now, I am going to employ you and put you on the front lines. You're going to go out and speak the gospel, and I'm even going to give you power to heal. But you're now going to engage in the process. Um, Jesus modeled the absolute doing the will of the Father. When you read the Gospels, notice how often Jesus speaks of, I must do the will of the Father, the one who sent me. It was foremost on his mind to fulfill everything that the Father had asked him to do. So when Jesus talked about being obedient to the will and the word of the Lord, man, all the disciples had to do was look at him. In fact, so obedient was that the culminating act is when he goes to the cross. Why? To fulfill the will of the Father. And so we see it. Jesus taught him how to love, how to teach, how to live by faith, how to serve, how to wash feet. Friends, that's the pattern that we have to do. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, your imperfections will actually prove to be helpful. It makes you real. But we need to be engaged and we need to coach. I, I want you to know that there's a lot you can learn from a classroom. I've learned a lot in classrooms. Frankly, there's a lot you could learn in sermons, just like what we're doing right now. And I pray toward that end that this would be an extremely beneficial 30-plus minutes of investment in your life. But I want to make this statement. Spiritual growth comes best from close contact with a holy example. Spiritual growth comes best with a close contact with a holy example. Let me can see how you talk with people and how you pray and how you act and how you react and how you deal with trials and struggles and how you deal with your own failure and your sin. How do you deal when things go well and when it's not going so well? That's what coaching does. Now, you know, like a father, they're concerned about the development of their, their, their kids. They want them protected. And so let me tell you what this looks like from just my experience. When you 
enter into some relationship, you just invite a guy, hey, let's have lunch, okay? And let's talk, and you say, hey, you know, would you like to just maybe use it, have a season of your life where you can just kind of grow and just kind of focus? And I pick a book like Master Plan of Evangelism or some other resource and pick the book Second Timothy. It doesn't really matter. We're going to use the word to encourage growth. And you'll find that, that what will happen, once they know that you actually care and that you have trust and there's respect, that they'll start telling you things. They have felt needs in their lives. Things about their character, relationships with their kids, their wife. Um, they will tell you about work issues. I, I found in a lot of times that guys, once they find out you're committed to their best interests, they start talking about forgiveness issues. And generally it has to do with how their father pretty much checked out or abandoned them or worse. And they just like are struggling and they need to forgive. They know it. It seems to be like the roadblock. So you help them. But in addressing felt needs, what you really want to make sure is you get to address the foundational needs. Felt needs are very important, but the foundational needs, like understanding what does it mean to be in Christ. Don't make making radical assumptions that people understand the gospel and what it means to be in Jesus and that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And you talk about personal time with God and his word, like how do you actually read the Bible and what, how do you pray? You can actually pray with him. You can model it for him. You can talk about knowledge of the scripture and doctrine. How does God's word apply to your situation? You can uh, address things like the condition of their soul, like how do you confess sin? How do you bear spiritual fruit? And then understanding, help them understand Christ's ministry of proclaiming, sharing the gospel, making disciples, serving. Help them understand these things. You see, what we do is we want them to grow and mature because we want to be making disciples because this is what Jesus asked us to do. I think about that little maturity tree. We talk about it a lot. It's our, our church vision statement. It's growing deep, and as you're growing deep, you're reaching out. I think about this all the time. Do you understand what it means to be in Christ? Do you understand the gospel and that you're united with Christ? What does it look like to know God and his word as you sink deep roots? Because that will affect your character, your convictions, your conduct, and it will also start showing up the character of Jesus in your relationships, like with your spouse, with your kids, folks at work, folks at church. And it also starts showing up in how you go about your ministry, which is your career. And that's a big part of what you're doing. And do you even have a ministry in this church? Do you invest in anybody? Well, I would talk about this because we are interested in reproducing fruit, maturity. And that's just what Jesus did. Jesus sometimes would put his uh, disciples in situations where they were beyond themselves, like like in the storm, remember? And they're like, oh, we're going to die, right? He did this several times. One time he was going to walk by them on the water. Why did he do that? Because he was training them. Remember, um, one time they have all these people were hearing Jesus. It's gotten quite late. 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The disciples pointed out that everybody's getting hungry, meaning we're really hungry. They must be hungry. We're starving. Jesus, what are you going to do about this? And he said, you feed them. Huh, we can't. Why did he put them in that situation to teach them? I want you to understand spiritual ministry. Um, remember the situation? There was a time where the, the disciples of Jesus felt like Little children were a hindrance to what Jesus was accomplishing. After all, he's very important, and he's dealing with important people, i.e. the adults. And they were, I don't know what they were doing, but somehow they were scaring the children, or they were making faces at them, or who knows what they're doing. They're putting the run on the kids, and Jesus said, come out. I happen to like little children. In fact, you need to end up looking like them, having that childlike faith. 
all of this was coaching. Jesus was always involved. See, the goal is not just passing on spiritual information. What's the goal? The goal is spiritual transformation. We're not just trying to create smarter sinners. The goal is spiritual transformation. And you teach them, even through their failures. In the Wall Street Journal a couple months ago, there was an article about Lieutenant Jack Cambria. This guy uh, had spent 33 years as the commanding officer for NYPD's hostage situation team. For 10 years, he had been talking one maniac with a gun after another to not be killing people or other policemen and, and really engaging people that were going to jump off bridges and skyscrapers in New York. And so on, the, on his retirement, he'd been doing this for 33 years. He just retired this year. He asked, what's the secret to success as a hostage negotiator? Lieutenant Cambria said this. Well, the very good negotiators, I think, are the ones who have life stories, particularly life stories of pain that have produced compassion for others. Do you hear that? He claims good negotiators must experience the emotion of love at one point in their life. To know what it means to have been hurt in love at one point in their life. To know success and perhaps most important, to know what it means to know failure. You know his colleagues, you know what they call him? Gentleman Jack. And he basically says the guiding principle is just to get the suspect talking. That's all you need to do. Just start the conversation. Let me give you a great quote by Oswald Chambers. If you're going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all, but they are meant to make you useful in his hands. Is that not powerful? That might explain a lot of what's happened in your life or what's going on at present. You see, when we're discipling people, we're coaching them. We're giving them perspective. What happens is you've got to move past being a personal success to a place where I want to be involved in influential significance. I want to see others grow and develop. I want to see them mature, and I want to give myself to it. You can start with little children. You can do it with youth. You can do it with any age, but you must be doing it because why? We're called to make disciples of all the nations. And that's exactly what we see Paul doing. In a very interesting book called The Masculine Mandate, God's Calling to Men, Richard Phillips gives a fascinating illustration. And he has this theory that behind every great man in history, there was a humble person who helped make this man great. And he talks about two statues that are in Washington, D.C. One statue uh, is the one of Ulysses S. Grant, okay? the great general in the Civil War who could do what no other general could do, uh, basically leading the Union Army and um, as a result of the victory that they had and somehow keeping our nation together, there is this massive monument that is given to him. You find it at the east end of the reflection uh, pool, reflecting pool. It's um, the shadow of the morning, the morning shadow of the Capitol rests right on that particular monument to Ulysses S. Grant. About two and a half miles away, there is another little memorial, and it is given to Major General John Rawlings. Uh, you'll see it here. You see that one on the right. Um, it's a lot smaller. 
It's, uh, it's in a park. Uh, it's actually been moved eight different times. They never really can find a place for it, so they keep moving it around. Major John Rawlins, probably no tourist ever go see it. You probably don't even know anything about it. But yet, um, this was an extremely important man. This man, Rawlins, grew up in the exact same town as uh, Grant was, and that's Galena, Illinois. And he actually knew him. Grant had a lot of issues, a lot of problems, especially he had a propensity to drunkenness. And so Rollins was brought on to be Grant's chief of staff. As the war got started, Rollins was able to get Grant to make him a pledge that he would abstain from drunkenness. Okay, that's where we're at. Well, when things got tough, Grant wanted to go back to the bottle. It was Rollins that kept working with him and encouraging him and pleading him and coaching him. And if it wasn't for Rollins, um, things might have been quite different. What uh, Phillips says this, Rollins' memorial is modest compared to the mounted glory afforded Grant. Yet without his unheralded love and support, Grant would hardly have managed even to climb into the saddle. Friends, never underestimate the influence you can have in the life of another person. You and I are going to make disciples of all the nations. We need to do as Jesus did, as Paul is outlining here. We need to be caring for people, communicating, coaching. Why? For what reason? Well, all you have to do is look at verse 12. We need to be commissioning. And he spells it out and look at verse 12. Why all this? Why this engagement? Why at such a heart level? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's actually a present tense calling. It's a continual calling. God has called us into his kingdom. We're, we're not only saved eternally and secure, but God is always calling us to holiness. God is calling us to make disciples, to share the gospel, to serve. This is the ongoing pursuit. And so that's what he's saying. You commission them. And that's what he's doing here. I commission you to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. How does that happen? It comes through discipleship. Like Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, And the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's just kind of like parenting, right? And discipleship is a lot like parenting. Every parent wants their kid to grow up and to mature. They give themselves to it. Frustrating, difficult, got to have a lot of patience. I'll tell you one parent who's very concerned about the maturity development, and the reproduction of his children. It's God. And so we see this. I'll tell you it's really more organic than organizational. And God never calls us to do something he doesn't equip us to do by the power of his presence. Kevin Miller wrote an article. It had a really interesting title called From Relevant Dude to Spiritual Father. <laughs> it's in Leadership Journal. And he talks about that when he was in elementary school, his dad had a two-hour commute one way. And he said, I grew up never really seeing my dad, never really had dinner with my dad. And so when he got older, he's like, man, I do not know how to be a father because I hardly been fathered myself. I don't really know what that looks like. Now, he had told himself because he had become a Christian that he wasn't going to go through one of those midlife crises, you know. But uh, he found as he was approaching age 40 that he was losing all sense of meaning. And so what happens, you know, for the husbands, they just get a 
tell their wives all about it. That's just, she's going to fix everything. And what we do is we wear out our wives, right? <laughs> okay. I, I see that some of you are relating to this, right? Some of your wives are like, how did you know? That's what happens, right? As if the wife is going to fix the husband. Finally, in Kevin's situation, his wife said, you know what? I can't help you. Why don't you go see Doug? So out of this crisis, he begins this relationship with this older guy, Doug. And he's just, I'll give you just a little excerpt from his article. That began an 11-year journey in which Doug, an older Christian friend and mentor, and I have met almost every month. Doug listens, he asks questions, he cares, and he prays. Twice in those 11 years, he has firmly warned against the decision I was about to make. And looking back on those almost decisions, he was right. But mostly, he has just shown up. And somewhat silently and mysteriously, his steady, caring presence in my life strengthens me to father others as well. Friends, discipleship is God's means of developing his people into maturity in Christ. You don't need to make it complex. All you really need to do is read this little passage in the New Testament. And by God's strength, through his grace, put it into practice. So how are you doing? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for a fascinating passage of Scripture. The ministry of making disciples, just like Jesus did here, right in the pages of Scripture, recorded by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit. So Lord, help us. Help us to continue to grow as a church that does just this. And Father, if there's someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, they just simply pray with me and say, God, I I turn from myself and my sin and the idols in my life. I want meaning. I want purpose. I really need forgiveness. I need you. And so I believe. I trust in Jesus. And God, that you have your way in us, both individually and as a church, that we would do as you have asked us to do, for your glory, making disciples, In Jesus' name, amen.